What I think happens is that after 12, um, the Republicans finally lost an election they believe they should have won. Um, and it's at that moment when you see a reorientation of the party in this direction of technology, digital data and analytics. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, part two of our look at the history of political data in the United States. Last week, we went from the 1890s right up until 2008. Today, we'll look at the innovations of the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012, as well as how both sides are learning lessons and using data in this, the 2016 election. By the way, thanks to everyone who reached out after last week's show with other stories. I heard about the so-called Nate Silver of the 1930s who did polling for FDR. A few people emailed with the earliest use of data and database in this context. Some examples going back to the early part of the 20th century. And a number of you said that many people had, in fact, written PhDs about whether targeting drives political opinion or vice versa. So bullet dodged. I don't have to write that PhD. Anyway, let's get back to it. Our guide, of course, is Daniel Kreese of the University of North Carolina. We'll start with him for some context, and then we'll pay a visit to Iowa to check in with some of the current campaigns. Here we go. So there's this notion that, you know, 2008 was this big advancement and the Obama uh, camp just had all sorts of sort of data-driven sophistication. Looking back on it now, if we can call this hindsight, what do you what do you make of that narrative? How do you assess that? Yeah, so I think generally what you see on the Obama side um, is that really in 2008, um, uh, the campaign really started to do the predictive level modeling, uh, individual level modeling. Um, and this is by people like Dan Wagner on the campaign um, that has become very much sort of the dominant way that campaigns are modeling uh, voters now. So, um, you know, the the older method for targeting voters was to generate like static micro targeting categories of voters based on like polling at a particular moment in time. The insight that that staffers such as Dad Wagner had uh, on the Obama campaign in 2008 um was that larger conceptual demographic or psychographic or behavioral groups didn't really exist. And that because within every category of those voters, those old micro-targeting segments, um, there was significant diversity. So what Wagner and other people at the Democratic Party did was move to a model of um, modeling that would be much more accurate if it was premised on individuals, not necessarily groups. So um, what they tried to do was aggregate, aggregate as much data as possible on individuals and analyze millions of data points uh, uh, on the electorate more broadly and continually do that to score individuals uh, on a predictive basis in terms of their likely opinions and actions, such as turning out to vote, and then testing these models um, over time of the campaign um, to, to improve them as much as possible. So what were the factors that were going into that model? I mean, obviously political behavior, but what other kinds of data points were they collecting on individuals? Oh, so the foundation of all this stuff is public data. Um, so the the public data that's really most important um, are things that you can get in in public records. So vote history, right? So how often do people turn out? 
right? What party primaries have they voted in, which would be an approximation for partisanship? Um, party registration, are they actually registered to a particular party? Gender, age, right? Geography, this is where things like census data becomes important. Things like marital status, um, children in the home, race in particular states. But there were all these reports that the Obama campaign was using, you know, car dealership information and and cable box information and all this stuff. And you're saying it's just like race, gender, age, marital status? Those those basic categories are the most predictive, um, and campaigners will tell you this. And then additional data points add marginal predictive utility, right? So you get better. Uh, the more data that you can add to the system gets better, and the more that you can do long-form data surveys over time, you can get better. Um, and then the more voter contacts you make in the field, you get better, because then you can actually test your models and improve them. Um, and that's really part of the story of the Obama 2012 campaign, is that as they put all these canvassers out in the field, and start generating field-level data, um, that data then makes its way back and tests the model. So, right, if you model someone to be a strong Obama supporter and you go to their house and you ask them, right, um, who are you supporting this particular election, and they tell you it's, it's your opponent, that's going to then feed back into the models that the campaign's generating. Okay, let's step away from the studio for a bit and head to Iowa. You can transfer through Detroit or Minneapolis, or if you want to shell out, you can fly direct. And let's see these models and the feedback effect Daniel Kreese was just talking about in action, at least as it pertains to the Iowa caucus. The Hillary Clinton field office in Davenport is decorated, and I say this completely without judgment, like an elementary school. There are colorful cardboard cutouts on the wall. There are snacks everywhere. It's clear that they are trying to cultivate a feel-good vibe. And the tools we saw being used were kind of elementary as well, at least on the surface. All of the volunteers we saw making calls were working from a paper call sheet and taking notes with a pen. Lauren Brainerd worked in this very same office for Obama, and now she's here running the show for Hillary Clinton. Okay, so we're looking at a call sheet together here, right? So on the call sheet, um, we have some basic information about this voter, um, their age, their sex, the precinct that they live in, um, whether or not we've ID'd them as a volunteer, um, their phone number, um, and then we have some results that we collect, whether they were not home, whether the person refused to speak with us, whether they've moved, uh, the number's disconnected, that's the wrong number for this person, or if they, uh, their first language isn't English. If we speak to them, like uh, this person here, um, we are identifying whether or not they're a supporter. Um, And if they're a supporter, uh, we mark them as a verbal Clinton commit, which we call a two. Um, If they're uncommitted, a three, we mark them as that. So how much has, like, your data set improved? Because it sounds like what you're doing a lot of is just, like, hygiene, right? Like, maintenance of the data set? Yeah. um, When we first hit the ground, um, we had um, just registered um, voters. That was our first uh, main set of data. We had Hillary Clinton volunteers from 2007, 2008, and her precinct captains. Um, And then we had the Obama campaign's general election data from 8 and 12. So that's some kind of old data. Um, And we've been 
since then able to get it down to the people who we know are going to caucus and people who aren't going to caucus or people who have decided that this is a time they're going to caucus Republican or something like that, those are people we're not going to follow up with again. We also ask them who their second choice is. That way, if on caucus night their candidate isn't viable, we can persuade them to join our candidate. So in theory, you should be able on caucus night to know about at the individual level who someone's second choice is and then like physically walk over to them and say... Yeah, that's the great part about the caucus and that's why we have precinct team members and precinct captains making these calls. These people will know the people that are turning out in their caucus and they'll know these are my supporters so I can get them signed in, I can make sure they showed up. And then these are people who I uh, who told me that they're going to either caucus uncommitted or caucus for Martin O'Malley and I know that if, they, if Martin O'Malley is unviable, I can persuade them to come over to our side. So that sounds fairly sophisticated uh, and like you're making progress, but like you're holding a sheet of paper. Yeah. Like you don't have apps or um, tablets. So uh, one thing is um, if you're going to have 25 people in an office um, on the internet, that's going to slow down how many calls you're able to get through. So we find that um, we let people use the tools that they're most comfortable with. We are gonna, we're going to go into the other room in a second and we'll meet Mary Ann, who's actually entering all of this into our data. That was my next question. Who's the poor soul who has to enter all of this? It's her favorite thing to do. Yes, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you keep you telling should, her that. You should talk to Mary Ann. So can I just get your name? Your- it's Mary Ann, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E. Last name is Bell Dash Overholt. Just for your information, the first time I um, used Vote Builder was um, the Obama campaign back in 2008, and it has not changed. I could come back, because I've worked like four different, volunteered on four different campaigns. And every time, I mean, I go in, and it doesn't take me much. That first screen, I know to put the, the grid. So how many of these entries are you doing on a given day? <laughs> no. Um, days like today, I'm probably going to, to do, I want to say, 30, 20, 30, 40 sheets. Um I don't know what that equates to the number of people because the system automatically create. When after these are done, um, the cutoff is like at eleven o'clock. Then it generates reports that the organizers and and Lauren gets. So I don't I don't get into that part. <laughs> That's Marianne Bell Overholt doing data entry at the Clinton Field Office, and before that, Lauren Brainerd, who helps run the Davenport office. That aside from Marianne about the interface she's working on and how it's the same interface she worked on during the Obama campaign, that's one of the ways the Democratic advantage, or at least what they hope is their advantage, manifests itself. This year's candidates get to build on the work of Obama in 2008 and 2012 through the DNC. I visited a Bernie Sanders field office as well, by the way, and as the race tightens in Iowa, it's clear that the campaigns are relying on that Obama infrastructure, those databases, and ex-Obama volunteers. And the winner may be the campaign that best understands how an Iowa caucus is different from a normal election. When you caucus as a Democrat in Iowa, you kind of announce your vote to everyone in the room. And if your candidate doesn't get 15 percent, you essentially become a free agent. So that's why, as you heard Lauren Brainerd explain, someone's second choice really matters. 
All of this makes it, in many ways, a very personal affair. So having one precinct captain call the same voter a number of times to build a bond and then maybe recognize them on caucus night, that could make the difference. Anyway, time to duck away from Iowa. We'll be back in a few minutes and rejoin our history lesson with Daniel Kreese. One thing that he's researched, he's actually kind of the first person to quantify this, is just how much of an investment Democrats made in tech going from 2008 to 2012. So let's go back to Daniel and back to 2008 and track how Democrats begin to build their tech bench. You know, the, the analytics uh, team, in essence, in, in 2008, um, on the Obama side was, was five people. In 2012, this was a 54-person team. Um, so the growth in this stuff um, has, has, is absolutely enormous. And that's raised all sorts of other issues, like where do you find the talent of people to do these things, um, et cetera, that both parties, frankly, have struggled with. Although one of the things that I've shown in, in my work is that the Democrats really dating back from 2004 have just developed a much deeper bench uh, in this area, a deeper bench of staffers who are trained in doing data and analytics work, um, but also a, a set of firms that are involved in doing this sort of work more generally. And this is something I hear trotted out every once in a while, too, which is that Democrats have an inherent advantage in this game because they're, you know, if you're looking for for data analysts, you're generally looking for, you know, younger people who are uh, – higher level of education, possibly coming from urban areas, you know, all the places the Democrats have an inherent advantage. So does that is that borne out? Do you see that? Well, I certainly see a Democratic advantage. Um, so some of the research that that I've done um, with a graduate student of mine uh, is that we we put together a 629 Stafford data set. Um, basically, everyone who's worked in technology, digital data uh, and analytics um, over the um, uh, from 2004 to 2012. Um, and one of the things that we found is that the Democrats just hired um, much more in this particular area. Out of 629 total individual staffers who have done this work on campaigns, 507 of those staffers were Democratic uh, and 123 were Republican. But are these people um, who were who are, you know, 25 and they just graduated from college and they were possibly going to go work for a, a Democratic campaign anyway? And then in 2008, that person happens to be a data analyst or are Democrats somehow targeting these people more effectively than Republicans. Yes, it runs the gamut. Um, so some of those people are are totally new to politics, right? So those young college age kids that you're mentioning. Um, but one of the things that we found is that we see significant numbers of field crossers, we call them, uh, uh, on the Democratic side of the aisle. So um, what this means is people who come from things like the commercial data analytics industry um, and they get recruited um, into uh, the Obama campaign on the basis of a donation that they might have made. So um, my favorite example of this from the 2012 cycle is Carol Davidson, um, who developed the campaign's optimizer, which was, in essence, a uh, algorithm helping the campaign um, target voters using cable set-top box uh, information. Carol had made a donation in 2008 to the Obama campaign, um, and she was in the campaign's database, and she had listed her, um, her industry being data and analytics. When the 12 campaign was looking for people to do this work, um, they went through and searched for that specialty among people who were in their data sets. They sent a targeted email to, to Carol Davison, recruited her onto the campaign. So 
the way that I would answer that is to say part of it is about young folks, um, but even more, a big part of it is about recruiting. You keep that talent in the party. You give them an opportunity to work in electoral politics. That builds up that bench over time. Um, I think the general sense, at least among political scientists, is um, you know Hillary Clinton is a very strong front runner uh, for the nomination. Um, that she has a lot of of assets in terms of the Democratic uh, uh, Party establishment, at least behind her, and much broader appeal throughout the party. Um, and uh, therefore, I wouldn't be surprised if if those long term infrastructure building efforts were being done on on within Hillary's campaign now. And I think to some extent, if they think, and I think a lot of people would agree with them, that that they're likely, very likely to win the nomination, they kind of have this longer runway to put it in Silicon Valley speak. So they may be, you know, thinking about the general election at a point when on the GOP side, they have to worry about the primary. I, I actually think this is really key um, and a very core argument of 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 my forthcoming book is that there's a technical advantage of incumbency um, that has gone sort of unremarked in a lot of the campaign mm -hmm. literature uh, more generally. But that it's that when you think back to 2012, Obama, in essence, had an entire year to do nothing uh, but plan on technical infrastructure, um, to do things like... Um, build field tools that volunteers could use when they're knocking on doors to collaborate with the with the party um, to improve data to run uh, uh, canvassing phone calls um, to get volunteers in the field and to build and and ultimately to build tools to build tools that volunteers etc could use um, very few people sort of stopped and said, well, that was a huge advantage for right. the Obama campaign versus Mitt Romney, right, who is running a long and drawn out and contested primary, who's spending a lot of money on television advertising to win into key primary states. And indeed, when I looked at all the, you know, the financial records of the two campaigns, the amount of money Obama had to invest in that basic infrastructure compared to Romney meant that the two campaigns were just on different levels um, come the general election. Um, Obama started with a year runway, as you put it, uh, a year head start. Um, I, I think that's that's key to understanding 2016 as well. I, I suspect, although we'll see, um, that a lot of what Hillary has been doing over the past year is building this long-term infrastructure that's going to roll over into the general election. Obviously, the GOP must know this. I mean, you're, you know, you're not saying this for the first time out loud. So how are they trying to bridge that gap? Or are they just not as worried? What I think happens is that after 12, um, the Republicans finally lost an election they believe they should have won. Um, and it's at that moment when you see a reorientation of the party in this direction of technology, digital data and analytics. Um, and then that those investments start to be made. So a core argument of my book is that um, Republicans have such the advantage in 2004 um, that they basically, you know, get to sit on that for a little while. The Democrats walk out of 04. They lost an election they believe they should have won. There's lots of impetus for change. And this is where you see Howard Dean's chairmanship basically setting into motion these larger changes in the party. In 2008, 
very few Republicans that I talked to at senior levels in the party on down to the campaigns really expected John McCain to win that election. Um, it was a very tough economic climate, a very unpopular incumbent. Um, they weren't looking at what Obama was doing as being consequential at all during that election cycle, um, in part because they just figured Obama was was a historic candidate mm-hmm. at a very in a very difficult right electoral period for Republicans. And of course, they're likely right, but it didn't cause them to actually like look at the Obama campaign and say, what are they doing differently that we could be borrowing? What investments do we need to make? Um, They thought they had the electoral machinery in place from 04 that was going to carry through. In 12, I think it was a very different story. I think uh, a lot of folks within the Republican Party, and I've heard this from practitioners, said we expected Mitt Romney to win this election. Um, We expected there to be much more parity, but it was very clear the president's uh, campaign and the Democratic Party more generally um, bested us on technology, digital data and analytics, and therefore we're going to invest in new things afterwards. And you see this in the GOP Growth and Opportunity Project report, uh, which came out after the 2012 cycle. Uh, You see the GOP and the Republican party more generally um, start to hire much more in these areas. You see a cluster of new firms, firms like Deep Root Analytics, um, uh, which gets founded by one of um, Romney's analytics people, Alex Lundry, um, who's now working for the Jeb Bush campaign. So you start to see now in motion uh, this race to catch up on the Republican side of the aisle. Can we can we briefly, though, eulogize Orca, which felt like this moment in 2012, that was supposed to be the big GOP uh, day of sort of statistically data-driven get-out-the-vote juggernaut, and it famously kind of failed, right? So do you want to just talk about why and whether that signals anything? Yeah, so... Orca is... It's it's very complicated, um, as as these things usually are. Um, But generally, Orca was to entail thousands of volunteers across the country updating a central database as voters went to the polls so Romney campaign staffers could monitor the returns coming in from the field and and direct field resources more efficiently um, towards identified Romney supporters who had not yet voted and turned them out to vote. Um, it was famously a a disaster, um, and and it crashed. Um, generally, what I found in interviewing lots of folks involved in the effort was that it was undone by a very hurried technical development process. Um, it lacked field testing. There was a lack of collaboration among technically skilled staffers and political staffers on the campaign. There was broad failures to plan for how voters would be organized and coordinated on Election Day um, and very little thought about how the project could effectively scale. I don't think it would have changed the election outcome. Um, I find very few people who sort of realistically suggest that it would. Um, But what I think it became was a a very much a symbol um, for how the Republican Party was behind the Democratic Party that practitioners really picked up on. So on the GOP side, where there is this this scramble and this lack of uh, a runway, uh, there have been a number of stories about how uh, some of the camps are running pretty sophisticated campaigns. So I'll just mention uh, Ted Cruz in particular, who's been there's been a sort of a bunch of articles. Uh, the Ted Cruz mobile app uh, kind of gamifies the campaign process. So u- users get points the more they sort of contact people or post on Twitter or Facebook. And then there's this whole uh, psychographic targeting that they have built, which is kind of like a Myers-Briggs personality test built on Facebook to target people. Does this feel like a next a, a next level for the GOP or in general? Republicans definitely have made a lot of investments 
um, in the areas of, of um, technology, data, and analytics. Um, and that includes revamping some of the party's infrastructure. That includes hiring a lot more talent. Um, it's important to note that all of the, the Republican Party candidates, at least as far as I'm, uh, I'm aware, are taking advantage of things like um, the new uh, data architecture of the Republican Party, the talent that's at the party, um, uh, as well as, as many of the GOP's uh, field tools. Um, so uh, that's important to note is that I think the Republicans have made a lot of investments after 2012 and after 2014 um, to become more competitive in this area that all the candidates are using. A lot of the new modeling techniques that you might be hearing about, um, I don't know. I think after the election, we'll, we'll have more data on that uh, in terms of, of how much it mattered and how sophisticated any of it actually was. By the way, that point from Daniel can't be overstated. Again, campaigns love it when there's a little mystery about how sophisticated their tools are. So take what you read or see in person or hear in this podcast with a bit of a grain of salt. Nevertheless, it's time to head back to Iowa to see how the Ted Cruz campaign is putting their side's data to use. If the Clinton campaign headquarters felt like it really valued the warm and fuzzy approach, the Cruz office felt a little more cold and calculating. Again, not a judgment. There was just a bit of an air of efficiency. Hi, Francis. I'm volunteering for Senator Ted Cruz, and Ted asked me to call you and tell you very briefly about his position on the right to bear arms. Obama is a The Cruz headquarters outside of Des Moines is a large room with rows and rows of phones. Volunteers here don't use their own phone like at the Clinton office, and you're about to hear why that's actually pretty important. And as with the Democrats, it's also important to remember the particular nature of the caucus in Iowa. On the GOP side, caucus night looks much more like a regular election anywhere else. You just show up, you cast your ballot in secret, those votes get counted, and that's kind of that. So there's less of a need for that personal touch and perhaps more a focus on just driving raw numbers. I spoke with Brian English, the state director for Ted Cruz in Iowa. This is how he thinks about targeting and data and his candidate. While I would like to think that every registered Republican in the state of Iowa will on caucus day support Ted Cruz, I understand that there are some folks who are more likely than others to do that. And so we want to start there. And then as we lock those folks in and get them committed to come to caucus for us and get them activated as either county or precinct leaders, we we then broaden that out to include likely and, and potential supporters. And so I think that with Volunteers making phone calls and volunteers door knocking, we have been able to maximize their efforts by sending them to or having them call uh, voters who are highly likely to be receptive to the message that they're bringing. So you're giving your volunteers out there, you know, some some data to sort of hone them in to target, right? But are they getting data? Are they bringing data back to you somehow? Correct. Um, so if I walk to uh, the home of the Joneses and and Mr. Jones comes to the door if I've got my my handheld device, my tablet or my f- smartphone and and uh, both Mr. and Mrs. Jones are registered Republicans. If he comes to the door and I click his name, it's likely to give me a script that for instance, let's say focuses on immigration or the second amendment because we've determined that that's probably the place to start with him. Oh, so you're really adjusting your issue script 
voter by voter, not just kind of your t- your your overall targeting. Correct. Yeah. And so, yeah, same household. Mrs. Smith comes to the door. And how do you know that Mr. Jones cares more about immigration than he does about taxes? Well, in the course of that conversation, there are places where we ask questions, and as he answers those, when we call him in a few weeks to remind him to go to caucus, we may have learned in that process that he also is a Second Amendment supporter or he also happens to be pro-life. And so we may work that into how we communicate with him on second and third communications leading up to the caucus. Do you want Mr. Jones to know that this is happening? Oh, I, I don't think anybody is under uh, you know any delusions that in this high-tech environment that that we're all trading information with each other. I mean, every time I swipe my credit card, I know that that information is in the hands of all sorts of people. They know that I went to, you know, the lumberyard and bought a certain type of drill. Everything we do, uh, whether you're using Facebook, Twitter, whether you're you're engaging in, in commerce and using uh, self-identifying points of purchase, we understand that that we're kind of paying attention to to how each other interacts. And so uh, I don't think that's a big surprise to Mr. Jones or Mrs. Jones that as I'm talking to them, holding on to an electronic device, that I'm also trying to make sure that I know what they like and they don't like so that I focus on the right things when I'm talking to them. So I'm curious about the the actual technology that gets used. So you, you reference the tablet that you send your, your people out into the field with. I mean, what, just walking around in this office here, I just saw pads of paper and, and pens. Well, the the stuff that you saw here is obviously not for door knocking, and so the the phones that we have have a, a way to log responses electronically. But um, people do make notes. You know, if if I get you on the phone and and you say, "Oh, could you call me back in a half an hour?" the the automated phone system may not bring that person's number back up in a half an hour but if i need to call you back in a half an hour i want to write that down but there's a way to uh, in these phone consoles if someone says i really care about the second amendment there's a way to electronically log that and then it gets fed into the database correct yeah solid all right well thank you so much for your time and you have a good evening brian english in the ted cruz headquarters outside of des moines To wrap up, we return to my conversation with Daniel Kreese, our guide to 125 years of political data. What we heard from Brian English in the cruise headquarters about the nature of political data gathering as compared to commercial data gathering has really stuck in my head. And we'll dive back in with Daniel on that very question. What's being done in the commercial space is is a lot more sophisticated um, than what's being done in politics. Um, and an important reason why is that there's just a lot more money in this area. Um, one of the things that I've, that I've found in the course of my research is that, um, you know, at the end of elections, um, oftentimes, like, people just go home, right? There, there's not a lot of monies, it, money in parties to keep engineers on staff. Um, or, you know, a lot of the vaunted technologies that the Obama campaign built in 2012, like Dashboard, for example, like the data integration um, uh, uh, system, Norwal, um, at the end of the election, like nobody maintained their code base. Like, the party just didn't have the resources to do it. Um, and, and people went to more lucrative jobs. They went to other places in politics. So that's a challenge. Whereas like Google doesn't just shut down, right? Uh, the day after a vote happens. Um, so in the commercial space, I think most of the evidence has is that it's just far more sophisticated um, uh, than within politics. The money is bigger. The stakes are bigger. It's ongoing. Um, and it happens over time. 
So, so you know, Michael Slaby, who was um, a very senior role in, in the technology operations of the Obama campaign, you know, when I, when I talked to him about some of the sophisticated tools that they were building, um, you know, talked about, you know, Dashboard, which was their online volunteer platform that was designed to be integrated with social, et cetera. You know, and, and he told me, and quote, um, uh, we built Dashboard in a matter of months with a relatively small team. The Dashboard team was only like six guys. Twitter is a much simpler technology, and they have 300 engineers just on the product side. Um, you know, and, and that just gives you an example of like the scale that we're talking about in politics here. These are apples to oranges comparisons. All right. I have one last question. Yes. If we think about the, the sweep of history from 1891 through today, does any of this work? Does it make a difference? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I love this. I love this question. Um, you know, a lot of people have, have looked into this. Um, and I think that the overriding consensus in political science um, and among practitioners is that it works on the margins. Um, and, uh, you know, generally, I think, um, you know, the metaphor I often hear from practitioners is that it's worth a field goal. Right. So um, it on on the margins, it will help you um, turn out more voters than the next guy. Um, you will be more efficient about how you spend your campaign resources. Um, I think on the whole where, you know, where things really matter is that over time you build up an infrastructure that just enable you to do everything better. It enables you to make your voter contacts more efficiently. It enables you to raise money more efficiently, right? Um, I think Obama is in part, um, you know, the president today um, because of how well they were uh, at developing their small dollar donor email list um, over the course of two election cycles and keeping that going, um, which enabled him to stay competitive with a lot of outside money coming from the Republicans. That was a technology and a data and a digital intensive process, right? Um, and and at the end of the day, it's really difficult to, I mean, you could quantify it in terms of dollars raised. It's difficult to pose a counterfactual Would that money have come in otherwise. Um, but my sense is that it, it was very consequential in terms of keeping Obama competitive at the end of the day. So I would say where it matters, I mean, there's a lot of things that matter in electoral politics. The electoral context matters, which candidate, uh, which party is in the White House matters, right? The issues that people run on matter. Uh, the state of the economy matters, right? All these things that we know are deep structural factors. Um, but when you think about what campaigns can do, technology, digital data and analytics are things they have control over and it's things that they can do. Um, and, and it's, I think, valuable on the margins. Daniel Kreese, uh, I hope we can keep talking throughout, you know, the 2016 election because there's lots more to keep our eye on as this evolves. Would love to. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Daniel Kreese of the University of North Carolina. Can you tell that I really like his work and we're going to keep having him back? You can find links to his work on our website, along with some photos from our visit to the Iowa field offices. You can see what a Clinton call sheet and a cruise data phone look like. Check it out. 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. You can see all of 538's videos on our Facebook page. Joel Werner, back in Australia, helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. 
keep emailing me show ideas for future political data angles to cover with Daniel Kreese or anything you want to hear on the show at all. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. We'll be right back.